Time marches on and leaves behind those who are not equipped for tomorrow. We cannot predict what will happen in the future, but we at Regent University aim to prepare you for it. With world-class professors and over 150 programs, the opportunities to find success in your field are many. So don't let tomorrow pass you by. The journey to your brightest future begins here. Visit regent.edu slash learn more. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue with our study in the book of Acts, Paul and Silas are worshiping in prison when God rocks the jail with a miraculous earthquake. We'll pick it up in Acts chapter 16, verse 26. The title of the message is, It's Not About You. Acts 16. Our natural reaction to bad circumstances is to wonder what we did wrong. That's usually our first thought. What did I do wrong? What is God trying to teach me? How do I fix this? And and this spawns, like I said, numerous reactions. We can become Job's comforters to ourselves, condemning ourselves wrongly. And, And here's the crazy thing. The enemy has no problem with that. Like when you do his work for him and you start digging, The Bible talks about examining ourselves, but there's a place where you can go if you just examine yourself so much, you're bound to find something, some wrong motive or something there because we're still a work in progress, right? So you'll find something to blame yourself for and to say, this is why this happened. So we can become Job's comforters to ourselves, uh, condemning ourselves wrongly. Or sometimes we can become angry at God, feeling like he's wronged us, like Job's response. Or we can grow discouraged and confused because we can't pinpoint. Why? Why is this happening, Lord? I don't, I don't see anything in my life that I really need to repent of. And, and Lord, I know you're faithful and I just don't get this. It makes no sense to me. And can I free you up just a little bit this morning? <laughs> Many times it has nothing to do with you. <laughs> Absolutely nothing to do with you. Sometimes we are placed in difficult circumstances by the Lord for others' benefit. It has nothing to do with you. Job's entire story is for whose benefit? Us, right? It's for our benefit. From the very beginning, Job didn't do anything wrong. And even in the midst of it, God really didn't have it out for him. And all these people who were accusing Job of stuff, they were all wrong too. Nobody had it right in the book of Job. It's so that we could understand suffering a little better, understand God's glory a little better, and to get a little bit of a glimpse into heaven, a peek into heaven to understand that God's purposes are so great, far Great, greater and higher than we could ever imagine. The problem is we so often fail to learn the lesson of Job. And so this morning, as we see God save a man and his family through Paul's suffering, it may challenge us to get our eyes off ourselves and to place them on the King of Kings who loves the world enough to put us through difficulties that they might know him. So chapter 16, let's start in verse 26. 
the situation, of course, Paul and Silas, they've been brought by a mob to the magistrates there in Philippi, and they cast them into prison. They tell the jailer, make sure you keep them safe in there. And he's, I mean, this guy is not just a jailer, but he's a torturer. And so he brings them into the deepest, darkest part of the dungeon, and he fastens them in the stocks, this incredibly painful, uncomfortable position. And there, as they're in this painful, uncomfortable position unjustly, They start worshiping God. They're praying and singing praises unto God, and the prisoners are listening intently. And into that situation of worship in the jail cell, verse 26 says, and suddenly, or right after midnight, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. Now, this is obviously a supernatural event. When I was in California, I never experienced an earthquake, but I don't think an earthquake automatically causes handcuffs to unlock, okay? I don't think our prisons go into high alert anytime there's an earthquake somewhere. That's not a natural reaction here. So this is obviously a supernatural event. Even though there is an earthquake, the supernatural event is that every single prisoner's bonds are just gone. They're loosed. And we're going to see in a second, the doors swing wide. They swing open supernaturally, okay? And so verse 27, the keeper of the prison who awakes out of his sleep, he awakes because the earthquake has woken him up. He awakes out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. Now, the way the Roman prisons were set up is they would have a home for where the jailer would. Could you imagine having that job? I mean, you go, good night, sweetie. It's great. You know, when I put my kids to bed, daddy, I'm scared. Don't worry. Mommy and daddy are here. There's no bad men around here. You can't say that to your kids if you're this guy. Daddy, I'm a little worried. That guy gave me some funky looks as they were dragging him in here, you know, and throwing him in the jail cell. It's okay, sweetie, don't worry. He's a nice guy. That's awkward. So they would have the house and then they would have the lobby area and then the outer cells were all around there. Like we would kind of, remember the old Westerns, you know, where they have the the little jail cells right there in kind of the office. It's kind of, that was the idea. But then there would be a door that would lead to the deeper dungeon area. Sometimes it would be a floor below. Sometimes it would just be in a, a further back place. And there, there would be, no light, nothing. It would be this deep, dark, dank place. It'd be sewage would be there. I mean, they didn't, you know, anyway, I don't want to go into it. It was just nasty. So, and that's where they'd put the worst criminals. And that's where Paul and Silas are. But so he gets out of bed, he wakes out of sleep and he sees these outer doors are open. All the outer doors are open there in the lobby and then the inner doors are open. He peeks, he sees the door open to the deeper prison and he pokes his head in there and he could see the silhouette of those door cells, those individual cells open. And at this point, he draws out his sword to kill himself because he's already figured they're gone. The prisoners have fled. And there's a part of me that thinks, well, buddy, you get what you deserve, man. And you're torturing these two guys who all, what's the only crime they had trying to tell people about Jesus. Being mean to prisoners for no other reason than the fact that you're the one in power and they can't stop you. It's easy to kind of look at people sometimes when they've been wicked and just think, yeah, well, that's what you get. But Paul, verse 28, it says, he cried with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm for we are all here. Paul didn't have to stop him. Paul could have thought, man, that's my ticket out of here. Let him kill himself. And then, you know, we can all get out and escape to the next city. And yet every single person mattered to Paul because at one time he was this jailer. He was this guy and Jesus rescued him. 
In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, I'd just like to read it to you real quick. But Paul, in sharing why he just believed that God's love, you know, wanted to reach everybody. He says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. Everybody should accept this, everybody, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is a truth that we need to let just get ingrained into our head. He came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause, I obtain mercy. Why? So that in me first, Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern, an example to those which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. I was this guy, Paul says, I'm not going. I need to reach this guy still. So Paul cries out with a lie. I mean, he sees him, he's got the sword. He's ready to plunge it in. He's like, wait, 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 no, no, stop, man. We are all here. We are all still here. It's okay, bro. <laughs> Don't do this, all right? Don't tase yourself. Now, Paul and Silas, I get, they just have this overwhelming love for this individual. They don't want to see him die. But the other prisoners, why aren't they gone? Why aren't they grabbing the sword and doing them in when Paul says, no, stop? They're like, yeah, well, we will, we'll do it for them. God was doing something in the jail that night. And is it possible that God put Paul and Silas through all this suffering so a bunch of these people could come to Jesus? <laughs> Let me ask you, how else is the Lord going to get a hold of that jailer and his family? Where is he going to find the love of Christ? All he's dealing with every single day is all these messed up people. How is he going to find the love of Christ? Sometimes, maybe you don't. I do that. Lord, why? Why is this? Why am I in this situation? Why? I mean, Lord, I'm walking with you and dealing with this. And, you know, people, you know, they just, you know, people sometimes are hard to deal with. And as you're dealing with those folks and the Lord's trying to stir love up in your heart, he's saying, listen, yeah, people, the people I died for the same way I died for you. And, and I love them. And, and, and I put you there because I love them. Well, Lord, if you love me, you wouldn't put me here. <laughs> right? <laughs> the Bible says that the offering of our lives to him, the suffering that we go through, the persecution that we might go through is a, Precious offering to him. Precious in the sight of the Lord of the death of his saints. It's worth it to him. It's worth it to him. And this response blows the jailer away. He's not expecting anybody to be there. Verse 29, then he called for a light and he sprang in. The area is completely dark and all he'd see is the silhouette of those open doors. And so he springs in, it says, he runs in, rushes in to the jail and he came trembling and he fell down before Paul and Silas and he brought them out. And he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Here was a man who knew he deserved death. He knew he was wrong. He knew he had done wrong, and yet he still lived. I wonder if he had heard the songs, maybe now in the distance, the little echo of the songs in the middle of the night, or maybe Paul and Silas had tried to share with them as they were being shackled, I don't know, but whatever the reason, this guy knew he was lost and he needed to be found. And so they said to him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved and your house. And they spoke unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. What must I do to be saved? That's a great question. 
And, and they answer it very clearly, believe, or it's in the imperative in the Greek, which means you must believe. It is necessary for you to believe. There is no other way. You must place your trust upon. You must place your reliance upon Jesus Christ. That is the only way to be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. We have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul isn't simply saying that he needs to believe Jesus exists. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that we must place our trust in all Jesus did, his life, his death, and his resurrection for our sins. But notice, that's the only thing he says. That is how simple salvation is. What must I do to be saved? Man, you gotta believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You gotta believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of times we, when we go out and we share the gospel with folks, sometimes you may not be able to go right to that point because the people that you're talking to aren't necessarily in a position where they're trembling and on their face, right? So sometimes we have to talk about our lost condition first. That's where the issue of repentance comes up. The idea of turning to the Lord, you have to turn away from something else. The idea of changing your mind about your sin. So that was not necessary because this dude already knew. I remember there were times when I would talk to people and they would just be ripe and ready. They knew they were lost. They knew they're lost and they needed a savior. And at that point, all you gotta do is just introduce them to Jesus. Here's the solution. Sometimes though, for people who don't know that, they're not there yet. You kind of have to talk about sin a little bit first, our lost condition. But either way, there's only one way somebody gets saved. And it's by putting their trust in Jesus Christ. Don't ever add to the gospel. It's not about putting your trust in Jesus Christ and joining Calvary Chapel or First Presbyterian or Second Baptist or Third Methodist. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's not Jesus and baptism. It's not Jesus and communion. It's not Jesus and, and a bunch of good works. It's not Jesus and circumcision. It's not Jesus and anything. It's Jesus and Jesus only. That's what all my hope is in. My hope is not in my own righteousness. My hope is not in somebody else's righteousness. My hope's not in my church's righteousness. Although I'm glad to be a part of it. My hope is in the righteousness of Christ. He says, and you'll be saved. You'll be rescued and your house. Now that could be confusing at first because say, oh, so if this guy gets saved, his whole family's saved then. No, no, no. Verse 32. And so they spoke unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. So Paul isn't saying that this man's faith will save him as well. He's saying that salvation by faith works for everyone, not just him. If you believe this, you'll be saved. If your family believes it, they'll be saved too. Here was this man about to abandon his family by using his sword to kill himself. And Paul wants him to use a different sword to be the leader of his house. You go get saved. You go give your life to Christ. You be the leader of your house. If the family was saved by the jailer's faith, then there'd be no need to preach the message to them in verse 32, right? They'd already be good. So Paul and Silas, they share the word of God with them and all those that were in their house. In verse 33, look at this. And he took them the same hour of the night and he washed their stripes and he was baptized, he and all his, straightway on the spot. And when they had bought them into this house, he set food before them, meat, and he rejoiced, believing in God with all of his house. You know what? This is what it means to be born again. He was a different person, wasn't he? Here's the dude who has no qualms about taking these guys. They're not violent criminals. They didn't do anything to him. They didn't harm anybody in the city. And they're beaten and bruised already because they had been dragged by force with resistance, the scriptures say, to the magistrates. And then they had been beaten with rods by the magistrates and then placed in these stocks where they're just all stretched out and just in all this pain. And now what's he doing? 
took them the same hour of that night. He didn't, he didn't say, man, you know, I'm tired. I'll, can I hook you guys up in the morning? Right then and there, he takes them and he washes their stripes. I'm a big baby, so oftentimes if I have to go to the hospital or something like that, which is very rare, but if I have to have something done, you know, I'm a big baby and Bev has to take care of me. And she takes care of me and I always whine about stuff. She's like, you gotta, you gotta do this. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. You know, so she's like, all right, you know, so walk me through it. And I'm worse than the two-year-old. And uh, can you imagine being beaten with those rods? How many times? The time and the effort, the gentleness that would be required to wash it out so they wouldn't get infected, to give them some relief. Talk about a complete turnaround. He is a different person. He is born again. And so after he washed their stripes, it says he was baptized, most likely in whatever he was bathing, Paul and Silas, it says on the spot, he and all his, immediately, him and his whole family, they get baptized right there on the spot. No, no waste in time. They just want to get baptized right away. And that's, again, the question of what is required for baptism? Do you have to go through a course? Do you have to go through, there are certain churches, they won't baptize you until you've gone through their membership course or through a foundations course. And, and that's why you got to do things that way. Really? And this guy had none of that. None of that. Same thing as the Ethiopian eunuch. What prevents me from being baptized? Here's water. And he says, well, you believe in Christ? He's like, yeah, there's water. Let's do it. That's it. That's it. I've had people ask me, I said, will you baptize children? I say, well, if they've given their life to Jesus Christ and they can articulate their faith, I'll do it. I'll do it. I've seen some of the most precious times is when you take an eight or a nine-year-old. And I, whenever I do a baptism, I give them an opportunity to share who Jesus is to them. So that's a warning for any of you getting baptized. <clears throat> but uh, I say, share who Jesus is to you. And to have these little kids say, I love Jesus with all my heart. And I believe he died for my sins. And I just want to live for him. Is there anything to prevent that kid from getting baptized? No way. No way. I don't ever want to discourage. I want to be like, I'm right there with you. Let's go out into that water and let's do that, bro. Let's do that. Let's get this done. And let everybody out here know that you want to follow Jesus. There's no time too soon for that. If they can understand the gospel and they've received the gospel and they want to share their faith publicly, there's no reason to stop that. There's no reason to stop that for a brand new believer. If they understand what they've done, they've given their life to Christ and they want to declare that publicly, then down under the water they can go. They baptized him right there. And when he brought them into his house, he set food before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all of his house. Man, he doesn't sound like a happy guy beforehand, ready to kill himself. Now, the reason they would do that is because if you were a jailer or a Roman soldier that was watching a prisoner and that prisoner escaped under your watch, you suffer whatever penalty they had, they were going to get. And so he has to be thinking, there's got to be somebody here worthy of death. I might as well just do it now rather than go through the process of being whipped and beaten and go through all that mess. I'll just kill myself now. And yet for someone to come to a place of suicide, I can't imagine there was much rejoicing in that home. I can't imagine there was much to be living for if he was ready to end it right there, to leave behind a family to have to deal with the consequences. And yet here we find them rejoicing and all the families rejoicing, believing in God. When most people say that we need to be more like the early church is because they see events like this and they say, I want to see that happen in my life. I want to see this stuff happen in my life. I mean, don't we want to have these kind of stories here at Calvary Chapel, Orlando? I want to, I want to see this stuff. The problem is, though, is that when somebody sees these things and they get all excited and they say, okay, so, so how do they do things in the book of Acts? And so we get caught up in methodology. We attempt to copy the form, but not the heart behind it. 
And so we begin to try to say, well, what did they do here? We had a jail ministry. So we should all be doing jail ministry, which is great if we'd have jail ministry. We have a jail ministry. We minister to the young ladies and the young men in the detention centers. But if we all do that, then we're not doing the full ministry. Oh, we should all just, you know, have all things common. That, that's how we should have church. Or it should be a healing ministry or whatever people want to call it. They get stuck up and caught up in the methodology. They attempt to copy the form, but not the heart behind it. Because here's the heart behind it. It's people like Paul and Peter. They were willing to go through whatever God threw at them in order to see lost people saved. Do you hear that? Paul and Peter were willing. This is the heart of it. Paul and Peter were willing to go through whatever God threw at them in order to see lost people saved. Their very lives were an offering. Their very lives were a tool God could use however he wanted. And man, that's what I want to be. Remember Abraham and Isaac, they were traveling up to the Mount Moriah and to worship the Lord, right? And Isaac looked at his dad and he said, I see the wood. We got fire, but where's the offering, dad? And so often I wonder, I think church today has a lot of wood and a lot of fire. There's not a whole lot of things dying. The very nature of an offering means something dies there. Something is laid down on that altar to die, to perish, to say, I'm not gonna live for self anymore. It's not gonna be about me anymore. That's what I wanna be. That's what I want our church to be. And therefore, every decision that we make here is going to revolve around two things, two very important things. How do we better disciple the people who are already here? And how do we better reach out to those who aren't? It's that, it's that simple. Every decision that's made around here is gonna be governed around how do we better disciple the people who are here? How do we better reach out to those who aren't? Because as I said, the very first Sunday I was here, one thing is necessary, right? One thing is needful. One thing I desired of the Lord. This one thing I do, what? Might know him. And the way that we get people to know him is we disciple them while they're here and then we bring them in so they can get to know him, right? That's what it's all about. Every single decision that is made around here. Are we gonna do this ministry or are we gonna do this ministry? I don't know. Is it gonna help us disciple people better? Is it gonna reach the lost and bring them in? Then let's do it. If not, we're not gonna waste our time on it. Some churches do a really good job of evangelism, reaching out to the lost. Some churches are entirely inward focused, but I believe we have a mandate from God to do both. Would you turn to the gospels with me to Matthew chapter 28? We're also gonna go to Mark chapter 16. I I thought this was fascinating. Verse 16 in Matthew 28. Then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. So he's, he went away into Galilee in a mountain where Jesus appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now I want you to understand the context of where they are at this point. And Jesus came and spoke unto them saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Therefore, go you and teach, or literally make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So Matthew 28 here, verses 19 through 20, it's in Galilee on a mountain, okay? And it focuses on our mandate to make disciples, right? He says, go therefore and do what? Make disciples. And how do we do that? We baptize them. We teach them the principles of Christ, right? That's what we're doing today, right? We're teaching, we're learning about what Jesus taught us to observe all the things that he has commanded us. But look over to Mark 16. We tend to think of these two chapters as the same event. In Mark 16, verse 15, 
Well, or actually, let's go up to verse 14. Because after he rose from the dead, it says, he appeared unto the 11 as they sat at meat. They're sitting down at a table to eat. And he upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe them which had seen him after he was risen. And he said unto them, go you into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that does not believe is condemned. So here we see an entirely different mandate. This one has a focus on the evangelistic aspect. Do you see the difference? These are two different events. We tend to lump them together because they both are the last few verses at the end of the gospels. And we figure, oh, it's the same thing. It's our mandate to go out and preach the gospel. But we have two mandates. We have a mandate to reach the lost, to bring them in, to bring them to faith, to preach to every creature. That's every single person who's out there. And then we have a mandate to make disciples of those who receive Christ, to bring them in and to teach them whatsoever things he has commanded us. And so everything we do here is going to focus on how do we accomplish being obedient to those two mandates. And so we ask these same two questions. Are we doing that? Are we accomplishing that? God, how can we better disciple those who are here and to reach those who aren't? How do we do this better? How do we reach more people? How do we better disciple the folks who are here? And that's what as leaders we're trying to do right now as we seek the Lord and say, Lord, what is best for both our family and those who are gonna be part of our family someday, but aren't yet. God, here's my life. I choose to die to all that, what I like and what I know I want because I wanna see your kingdom expand. I wanna see hell gates come down no matter what it might cost me. That was the attitude that Paul and Silas had here, willing to go to jail to see this jailer come to Christ. It's natural to worry about ourselves and want to look out for number one, especially when crazy things beyond our control are happening. But keep your eyes open, because when things get crazy, it might just be exactly when God is opening a door for you to share His love with someone who needs Him. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525.